Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is episode three of the series covering the latest issue of the magazine, Beyond Borders. Today's pod is going to be less of a set of interviews than a conversation among friends. I'm Susanna Black, senior editor at Plow Quarterly. And I'm Peter Momsen, editor-in-chief of Plow. This is the episode where we talk about place and cosmopolitanism and what it means to have roots. We're the speaking. cosmopolitan elite. The cosmopolitan, yeah, we are the, we are the rootless cosmopolitan elite discussing cosmopolitanism. And hopefully we will trigger everyone at the same time. We are speaking first with Tara Isabella Burton and Don J. Jagannathan. Tara is a journalist and novelist. Her debut novel, Social Creature, was named Book of the Year by The New York Times and The Guardian. Her second novel, The World Cannot Give, will be published by Simon & Schuster in March 2022. She's the author of the much-acclaimed and really fun Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World, published 2020. And she's working on a history of self-creation, self-made, curating our image from Da Vinci to the Kardashians to be published by Public Affairs, in 2023. That sounds really fun. Yeah, I'm psyched for it. Um, her fiction and nonfiction have appeared everywhere. Um, she is a columnist at Religion News Service and a contributing editor at American Purpose, which I always misread as American Porpoise. Um, she also co-writes the Substack newsletter Line of Beauty with her husband, Don Jay, who is on uh, as well. Don Jay Jagannathan is a teacher of philosophy, a scholar, and an essayist, a professor in the Department of Philosophy at Columbia University, who is currently working on a book on Aristotle's ethics and political philosophy. His writing for a broader audience has appeared in Plow, Breaking Ground, and Earth and Altar. They are also two of my best friends and have kept me sane through the pandemic with weekly residencies, open house gatherings, where we kind of remind each other that like we have faces and bodies and are not just like zoom related entities anyway so the two of you both have uh pieces in this current issue which is our beyond borders issue which just came in yesterday and they're really they're complementary pieces which is not surprising because you guys sort of share a lot of things and um I was kind of just hoping that we could all talk about the sort of various themes that both of these pieces uh, touched on. And maybe a way to start off on that would be um, you guys are both kind of third culture kids in a way. Um, Tara, do you want to talk a little bit about what your piece was about and what your background is? Sure. So um, I'm uh, it's funny, I think. I would say I'm American now. I'm not sure that I would have said that for a variety of reasons as a teenager. Um, I've only ever had an American passport. Uh, My mother is American. Uh, My father, who who was not in my life and and was never in my life, uh, is Italian. Um, I grew up... um, My mother was living in Rome when she was pregnant with me. I was born by mistake in New York City because she was uh, visiting family while pregnant, and I was born very, very early. Sometimes my mom would say, hey, we're moving to Paris next month, and, and we indeed would for a period of time. Oh, and I lived in England for 10 years, and nine, nine, and now I'm in New York. But my piece was about a particular attitude that I grew up with, uh, largely as a result of um, moving around all the time and the very particular way in which um, moving was conceived in my family. Um, I think we we were always uh, the very much were rootless cosmopolitans, uh, and possibly, I would say, proud of it. I remember you know, my mother after 9-11 saying, well, we're not really Americans, we're New Yorkers, and of course, we can move all over, and we have certain kinds of 
privilege and certain kinds of freedom, I will say rather unexamined in, in many ways. Uh, and I sort of absorbed these ideas growing up and thought of myself as in similarly not really American in a certain way, possessed of certain kinds of freedoms, thinking of these freedoms as desirable. Um, and I, the idea that I was a sort of global citizen, that I could just pick up and move anywhere, anytime, start a new life anywhere, anytime, was really attractive to me. And as I got a little older, as I uh, interrogated my own ideas in various ways, um, I reacted quite strongly against that and sort of developed a fascination with certain kinds of rootedness and home. And what I've been grappling with and grapple with particularly in a Christian context is the way in which there's something to the community that transcends certainly national borders, other kinds of borders where um, the creation of a body, um, a polity, can be transcendent of and, and ideally would be transcendent of certain qualities, particularly when we think about this as a sort of against the backdrop of, of the rise of certain kinds of nationalism, particularly right-wing nationalism. Um, we think about the, 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 there's something to the idea that we can create a polity without rootedness or without bad rootedness. And yet there is also, I think, a necessity for, for good rootedness, for a way of being together and living with one another where place isn't just um, the background of our Instagram, as it were, where it isn't just a commodity that we can consume as we want, according to our desires, because um, places or people are, are, are fungible in a certain way. You know, obviously the Bruderhof are themselves kind of like third culture kids in a lot of ways, having gone from, um, you know, Germany to England to um, uh, Paraguay to America and then all over. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about is the way that, um, I don't know, the way that the New Testament looks at this in particular, where like Pentecost as a kind of story heals the story of the Tower of Babel, but doesn't really reverse it. And it kind of creates this new, um, you know, there is this new kind of polity, the, the kingdom of God but it's a multi-ethnic and multinational polity where people retain their complicated, um, different national identities. Don and Jay, that kind of leads into your piece in an interesting way. Do you want to just kind of like talk about what that piece was about and um, about sort of your background as well? I was an immigrant twice over as a child. We moved from India to Jamaica when I was three and my earliest memories of my family in India um, are all from summer holidays back home, visiting my grandparents, my aunts and uncles and cousins and so on. And so we were still rooted there. We, we went back regularly, but um, we lived in Jamaica for six years, then moved back to India, as I described in the piece, very briefly before ending up in the United States. And um, in some sense, those were, those were chosen. In some sense, those were unchosen, or at least uh, choices that my parents made under various kinds of pressures. Uh, including uh, what we would now think of as, as issues about um, uh, en environmental uh, damage and uh, industrialization. You know, we lived in New Delhi when I was born, and I spent a good part of my early life very sick because of the pollution there. And, um, and my parents, although they were 
uh, highly educated, as most of my family is, and uh, economically comfortable in India, um, you know, everyone suffers alike when the electricity and the water go out. And that was a very common occurrence. And, um, and so you know, that's how we ended up we ended up in the U.S., but of course, it was also a matter of choice. A lot of my father's family was already here. I describe in the piece that I have this Midwestern family, and um, you know, Chicago was one of the first cities I saw growing up, and I ended up living there as an adult myself. And I felt like that was a kind of coming home for me. My sister went to college there. You know, I have I have I have a lot of roots there too, although they're the roots, mostly roots of of migration. And then as an adult, I, I, shortly after becoming an American citizen, I moved to the UK and I, I thought I would be there for a long time because I was choosing um, British academia in a way over American academia. And, uh, and then I reversed that choice a few years into my, my time there and came back home. And again, you know, that was mostly because I was excited about doing my PhD at the University of Chicago. Um, but it was also in part because it was becoming a very unpleasant place to be an immigrant. Um, and uh, these are the the early years of the the first Cameron uh, government. And um, when I was a graduate student at Cambridge, for instance, I was forced to sign a register to say that I hadn't caused any trouble and that I was being a good immigrant. Um, ten time, once a month, I had to go in and sign this register, and I, I felt quite offended by that. Um, and so, you know, and I, I didn't I didn't relish the possibility of having kind of uncertain. Uh, academic or employment status in in a country that was being very unwelcome to migrants, and there were, there were horror stories that I'd heard about people getting trapped between visa visa categories, and so I came home to what was you know a country um, that I had barely lived in as a citizen, but that was very much home, um, and it's it's that alchemy um, that I talk about at the very end of the piece uh, in relation to to Goethe's elective affinities. Um, you know, we, we tend to think of our choices as something fully under our control. But of course, you never choose the circumstances. And I'm very conscious that, you know, the choices that I and my, my family have made about where to live have largely been voluntary. And that's not the characteristic experience of migration. Um, most people migrate because they're displaced, because they're refugees or asylum seekers, or what we might think of now as economic migrants, people who are really desperate in their home countries. And that was, of course, not my, my family's own situation. And, and that's part of what I want to grapple with is, um, what is what does choice look like? And um, to what extent did I choose America? And, and, and to what extent did America choose me? And, um, and this goes back again to Tara's point about earnestness. I'm very earnest in this piece, and I feel very earnestly about my love of country. Um, and uh, I, I too want a, a patriotism that isn't just uh, ethno-nationalism. And that, that's, one of, that's one of the things I also explore. Yeah, I, I, I really uh, loved the little Goethe exploration in your piece there, Dan and Jay, and, and bring that into conversation with this. You know, I, I think early on in the con- this conversation, it would just be good just to mention the, the wider context in which, you know, your pieces appear which is um, a, a rise in a, a sort of nationalist impulse in, in our country, um, if you know, in the United States and around the world um, over the last few years, um, which comes from un- for understandable reasons, right? A, a desire for for that for that rootedness, which people have felt um, taken from them there's it, it seems almost to be a a sense of loss that we used to have something that we don't have anymore um tara at the beginning of your piece you describe you you, you start off in a little georgian village which um 
in some ways could encapsulate what I think a lot of people think of when they think of place and patriotism and rootedness, right? Of, of this little place where one's ancestors have lived forever and where everyone knows each other and where one has, um, you know, real roots, right? Um, so I'd be interested in, in hearing both your thoughts on, you know, what does it mean? Um, what is that good patriotism look like? What does the good rootedness look like? Um, can we get a little further into that? I think for me, it's it's about a community where we are we are known sufficiently um, that we're not necessarily fully free to to reinvent ourselves. Um, um, I think that there's there's a sort of and I'm thinking as much as the Georgia Village as I am about like the diner where they, you know, in New York where I've been going since I was a kid, where you know they remember how annoying I was as a child. Um, I think that there's there's some way in which a community that sees you in all of your aspects, whether it's because um, they've seen your family through generations or because you're, let's say, coming together as adults. Um, and I'm speaking of community rather than of country here, but I think the, the model stands. Um, you know, your friends who, who really know you and kind of know your, your, your good qualities and know your flaws and the people you, you kind of can't fool, even when you're running away from something or want to present yourself some way. I think the good of a rooted community is that it kind of tethers us a little bit. It forces us to reckon with who we really are and the way in which that kind of, that really is predicated on the whole web of social relations. What's so striking about your, your example, Tara, in that essay is that that, that little um, guest house in Korsha, um, the, 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 the place where that narrative begins is a place that's all cobbled together from people from all over. So in that very remote place, um, you know, there too you find the kind of um, making of community that you're describing in relation to New York. And that, I think that shows that those possibilities are, are there to be actualized wherever people are. And it's, it, it might be more, a, a more salient poss possibility in places where there are many different sorts of people, because then we're encouraged to think about what actually does draw us together instead of relying on, um, on other sources for that, um, or assumptions about what we already share. But, uh, you know, it, it was remarkable to me that that you felt rooted in that in that little place, and um, and this it, it strikes me that um, you know when we talk about this in relation to to nations, that it's just a truth that every nation is cobbled together. I mean, just from the very minimal fact of um, uh, you know people live and experience a place in one place, even in the age of of long distance travel, rapid long distance travel, almost everyone lives somewhere and some particular place and has those kinds of, uh, unless they're fully alienated, uh, immediate relations with people around them. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, this is what I talk about in my piece as well, that you have, you know, aside from Monaco or Vatican City in every country, you're in it by being in some particular place. It's a geographic uh, metaphysical point, I suppose, but um, I think it's it's a phenomenological one too, and um, and so you know Georgia too is a cobbled together nation. So is the U.S. and and you know so is uh, certainly a place like Great Britain, which is you know formally composed of multiple nations. Um, but 
the, the cobbling works differently in different places. And I think this is, this is important um, to understand, uh, understand the phenomenon of nationalism is that it's not one phenomenon. Um, I think there's something very puzzling about American nationalism. It's very hard to come up with a very good narrative about how um, this country belongs to anyone. Um, but I can I can see someone making that case for other places and and you know the kind of nineteenth century style um, uh, every to every ethnos to every tribe a nation um, and just one um, and um, and that's also true of a lot of places that that underwent uh, decolonization so you know the the striking thing about uh, about Great Britain and about England in particular is that so many of the people there are. Um, people who came there from from former colonies, and the experience of empire turned out to be quite porous in both directions in many places, um, and that means that um, you know that a, a new cobbling together has to happen. You know, in I think it's really you can really think of the the process of say 1945 to the present in the UK as a process of nation building in a really important sense, and that seems curious because most people will point to. 1707 or 1215, but I actually think, you know, the breakdown of the empire is really when, when, um, when that process got going. And, um, and I, I think that, that it's going to look very different in different places. And, and that means that we can't talk about nationalism as one phenomenon. I think that one of the reasons that Tara and I, you both have this like Austro-Hungarian empire, Jones, is that we like the weird, complicated stuff. And we like there to be room for real selfhood and real culture, but also complication and overlapping. Yeah. Overlapping. Um, does that make sense to you guys? I wondered about the sort of particular kind of nostalgia that you find in these novels, um, or, or in the sort of Austro Hungarian empire mood more broadly. And I, I think that perhaps the, the pull there, uh, the best of the pull there is a recognition that, our cultural narratives are as based on myths, on fantasies, on poems, on sort of frag fragmented ideas as they are, um, I won't say as opposed to real things, but ways in which um, kind of the stories we tell one another um, and whether they be um, sort of reportedly factual stories, whether they be novels, whether they be national poems or epic poems or art, ways in which the kind of vast verticality, as it were, of, of the artistic corpus handed down um, is something that is often, that we're able to connect to, that creates the kind of imagined, but also... Um, an imagined narrative of hist and history insofar as it's always uh, ideological, ideological insofar as it's always a creative narrative. And yet, insofar as it's the product of books and stories and images written down by real people who lived in real places who were themselves interpreting their little corner of, of what they saw, I think that that, that awareness that you know, when we think of our story, uh, we are thinking of so many stories overlapping on top of one another, and we're thinking of a kind of, I just have this image of, like, a beautifully cacophonous uh, orchestra where everyone's clanging something slightly different, but somehow it all works together as one. Um, and I think that, for me, a lot of my love 
have stick on divide, if not just loving a particular period of history or being drawn aesthetically to certain kinds of architecture, but loving the way in which the kind of story of what a poetic narrative is, 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 is kind of lampshaded um, and brought to the forefront. Yeah, I want to I want to pick up on the point about no- nostalgia, if I may. The I mean, there there's there's an there's an interesting problem there um, about historical memory and and our and our self understandings. And um, one of the difficulties for um, Hindu nationalism in India these days is that there's not an appropriate period that's not mythic to draw uh, to draw on because the the country was self evidently created by by empire first the Mughal Empire and then the British Empire. And so if you're going to get the territorial integrity right, you're going to have to tell a story that goes back to some prehistoric or at least archaic period. And um, that's not going to work in, in other places. You know, maybe the closest analog to this is Greece, right? There's, a, there's an awareness of a, of a kind of um, historical memory um, of uh, classical Greek culture. And you can tell the story of the in-between period involving uh, Byzantines and the Turks and so on. And, and in order to get back to the pure Hellenic ideal, you have to do a lot of violence to the experiences of actual people. Um, and, I, and I think these, these, these kinds of cases of, of sort of plausible and implausible nostalgia are really interesting to me. And, and then there's, you know, there's a question about what is, what's driving American nationalism these days. And, and again, I think it's difficult for people to fasten on to just one period because the, the actual history is so complicated. Um, but I'm, I'm instinctively anti-nationalist. And so I guess, you know, again, I want to make, I want to make out the best argument on the other side. And the best I can come up with is that, you know, people do need shared stories and shared understandings. Um, but I think they need them instrumentally in order to access shared values. And it's actually the values that are primary. Um, and in this, I'm inspired in part by, by Frederick Douglass's writings and his political philosophy, um, something that Tara has also been writing and thinking about in the 19th century. And, um, you know, Douglass is faced with this enormously painful fact of, of American slavery, but um, uh, which is, you know, uh, this horrifying, violent institution. And, and yet he still is thinking like the founders of a, of a nation that, in, that could include um, former slave masters and former slaves and and all the other people that that um were in this country and there were far far more native americans as well in that in that time um and uh and how can you how can you bring all these people together well you know the actual historical narratives aren't going to be very much comfort but i think there is a sense of um shared values and he locates it in in the value of resisting tyranny and he analogizes the the slaves resistance uh, to the slave master, not just analogizes, but equates it to the founding father's desire for, for freedom from, from tyranny. And, um, and that's, a, that's a masterful um, uh, idea and ideal and construction of an ideal. And that project of accessing and understanding our shared values is going to be ongoing. And this is, I think, where um, the kinds of nationalism that I'm less interested in um, separate themselves, that they're interested in something fossilized. And so the nostalgia is about accessing some fixed past relative to which we can make sense of ourselves. And that's always going to be shifting around, including as the people in a nation shift around, but also just over time, it's going, those things are going to lose their, their force. And I think there's far fewer people for whom 
invocations of Dunkirk, for instance, are going to activate anything like a shared national identity. Um, but, um, but there are more recent events that, that might. Um, and, and I think that's interesting. And maybe for some people, it would be 9-11 in America. For other people, it would be the election of Barack Obama. Um, and I talk about both of those events in my piece. And I think it's interesting that thinking about these things as sort of ongoing processes of, of, um, of national formation. We're now going to be speaking with acclaimed theologian John Milbank, uh, who will be joining us actually for the launch for this issue in the United Kingdom on October 14th in London. Susanna, uh, what's the name of the venue? It is the Seekford Pub in uh, Clerkenwell. And we will uh, be, you know, if you're interested, watch the Plow Twitter feed because we will definitely be tweeting it out. Um so John is going to be speaking, and Adrian Pabst, and Mary Harrington, and Stephen Backhouse. So join uh, John Milbank and Suzanne and those others there if you're in the London area. Uh, John Milbank is Emeritus Professor in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Ed, uh, Nottingham, where he is President of the Center of Theology and Philosophy. So welcome, John, and thank you for contributing this piece to the issue in the land of Logris, which is this kind of rhapsodic... Uh, hymn of praise to the English countryside, um, which I really loved. And I'm just wondering, John, what what kind of, uh, what part of England were you thinking of when you wrote this piece? And uh, could you kind of summarize it? Well, I, I, I was really thinking of the whole of England, um, but I, I wrote it after we'd just been on holiday in Devon. So it, it focuses down towards Devon um, to a degree. Uh, and I suppose I saw Devon as something like an epitome of the English countryside because it has sort of very gentle uh, pastoral bits, but it also has a very wild area in the middle. And it has a lot of coastline and contrasting coastline that, again, is either sometimes very gentle or, or, or very wild. Um, it's, it's, it's a very difficult piece to summarize because um, it's rather elusive. And I suppose the core of the piece is about the relationship between the English poetic sensibility on the one hand, and the character of the English countryside um, on the other. And it's basically um, a reflection on the notion of um, pastoral. And, and it's suggesting that the, in some ways, the English countryside is peculiarly uh, pastoral in, in, in character. Um, it's quite gentle, it, it's quite garden-like, even if it has these wild fringes to east and west and north that are that are being constantly invoked and um you can see the the pastoral as illusory uh, as a kind of retreat from reality but i suppose the central argument of the piece is that it's not really like that because the pastoral um is a search for simplification. It's a search for a return to roots, um, if you like. And um, however, com how necessarily, however complicated human society and culture becomes, and that might be 
quite important for the extension of human communications, development of human talents, um, uh, uh, and all sorts of other progress, unless it connects back uh, in the end to our, our rootedness within nature and to uh, the simple things that are consistent uh, about our, um, our physical needs and uh, our, um, the things that we, we love most, most basically, if you like, the things that are nearest to the animal level, even if we've, we're, we've always gone beyond the animal level. So it seems to me that the pastoral is something about um, reminding us of, of the basic. So the, the fact that the, art, the, the pastoral can be, of course, quite artificial and is idealizing um, the, these rural conditions is, is nonetheless part of its truth because it's, it's trying to combine the complex with, with the simple, if you like. It's simplifying complexity without completely losing hold of, of, of complexity. But as you say, it's a very difficult piece to summarize. It's essentially a poem, and it's funny in a um, sort of elusive way. And it, uh, like, the more you know of English literature, the more echoes you'll find in it. That's at least I. I found it completely delightful because of that. I kept it kept like it. It was like running into little friend. It was like running into friends, kind of. Um, well, absolutely, and, and as a sort of outsider to the topic matter, you know, I'm American and, and German and Susanna, you're American and New Yorker, as we were just talking about. Uh, it, it made, you know, even an outsider kind of fall in love with the idea of, of England um, that in, in a way that, you know, I, I wasn't expecting at all. One of the reasons that I'm um, really happy to have you on is that we've kind of we've gone um, a couple of rounds this batch of podcasts about this particular issue of the magazine about, you know, slightly both loving the idea of nation and rootedness and then being agonized about it and then thinking that maybe empire is a better model and then thinking that maybe um, all of these things are just sort of invented. But this piece and other parts of your work are very attuned to the reality of nation and that being a good thing that some, that we don't need to um, be scared of as long as it is not um, sort of essentialized is the wrong word, as long as it's not made an idol of essentially. Yeah. Well, so the piece made me think too, does, does a nation, does a country, you know, you, you wrote both about the English countryside and about the English psyche and how the two are intertwined and the, the you know, the uniqueness of them. And you could say from the outside, the gift of that to the world. Um, so there is, there's a sense in which, you know, does, does a nation have a soul? Uh, does a nation have a calling? Uh, in the world, uh, looked at from Christian terms? I, th I think that one of the issues there, um, you know, which one of your contributors has already been talking about is is the question of, of values. And, and obviously, um, if, if a nation or, or any human community 
um, isn't committed to positive values, that, that, then it's hopeless. But I think that, that values aren't necessarily entirely abstract. And I think it's possible to value in different countries, different traits of character without thinking that uh, we should all behave like that or, or, or something like that. Um, that, that, that if you like, um, human values are necessarily incarnated in different ways, which bring out different concrete facets. So I, I think, uh, you know, one can go beyond the idea that we should only be attached to abstract values. You know, I think it's it's okay that we're also attached to certain customs and traditions and patterns of doing things. After all, you know, that's partly why we go on holiday to foreign countries, that we enjoy their habits of life. Um, sometimes we even think they're better than their own, but we don't entirely follow them simply because they're not our own. You know, they're not the most familiar things. Um, but I think there's also an area where the, the abstract meets the concrete, if you like. And I suppose one of the things um, that I was trying to indicate in that piece was the way um, the English perhaps value both privacy and community, that, that they are, uh, that they're not complete individualists, maybe less individualists that, that, than Americans are, but they, they certainly value privacy uh, and a space to be eccentric and, and to do your own thing. Um, but uh, at the same time, there's quite a strong sense uh, of community and neighborliness and everybody getting together, and especially in a crisis, um, uh, 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 collaborating. And I think to some degree, you can sometimes see that in, in, in the English countryside, that, that it, it seems as if, in a sense, everything is private, and yet everything is knitted together, and you can, you can pass from one bit to another, because, uh, you know, again, unlike in America, there are footpaths going everywhere. I mean, not enough, and I believe in a wider right to access and a wider right to row. But nonetheless, this sense that it's all kind of knitted together either by hedges or stone walls, um, and, and, the, uh, and the, there, there is, in a sense, often no sense of gap. Uh, and yet, it, it's not. It's not. It's not completely privatized either. The the it, so, there's some kind of expressed synthesis of of this um, private isolation with a coming together at the same time. I am. Um, I'm in the middle of reading uh, Peter Ackroyd's first foundation, the first of his history of England, and he talks about the enclosure movements, like the the post Norman enclosure movements, which you know, you think about this in the, like, you know that this happened, but when you sort of imagine what it would have been like to have for generations known that like, you know, worst case scenario, you can go into the forest and, you know, hunt a deer or gather wood. And that's, that's like a sort of basic economic safety net. And suddenly that gets taken away. That's, that's pretty shocking. Um, and I, there's, there's an element to, I don't know, I, I was finding myself getting extremely anti-Norman as I was reading this. Yes. <laughs> um, and obviously there are arguments about that, but I think there's little doubt that 
um, you know, the Normans did. There were vast areas that were simply, you know, royal hunting areas. Uh, and the penalties were were really extreme, and I think that that did set a, a precedent um, for much later enclosures, which were, yeah. you, you know, carried out by much more by aristocrats or by the gentry. Um, the the more that they got linked to uh, commercial activity, and and sometimes at that stage. Um, in the case of Charles I and Lord, for example, uh, the monarchy was relatively opposing enclosures, you know, and the parliament was more supporting them. But the, there's, uh, you know, there's there's no doubt that that's a big factor in in English history and the, the disappearance of of the peasantry um, um, in, in contrast to to France uh, and uh, everybody becoming an agricultural laborer. How do you, John, I mean, that brings up, you know, every every country, every the idea of belonging to any people means belonging to a history that's um, not only glorious, that includes, you know, so, so much of this moment of enclosure sh shaped what England is today, shaped that knitted together countryside that you spoke of. Um, could you help us think a little bit about what it means to be patriotic, to be proud of belonging to a people uh, whose story um, includes both the good and the bad. I think that today we're very much in danger of completely demonizing the past, you know, to to be shocked that the fact that the past contains some horrific things, maybe some of those have been amended today. Um, and, and, and that can cause us to become very, very uncritical uh, about our own presence, to, to not realize um, the things that we've lost. For example, all the patterns of ritual uh, that gave meaning to, uh, to the lives of ordinary people, something that I always also talk about in, in the piece. You know, we imagine that their lives were rather humdrum, poor and dull. But because they marked the seasons, they were aware of nature, um, uh, uh, and there was a, there was a pattern uh, to time as well as to, to space. Um, the, there was a kind of automatic uh, meaningfulness that that people could dwell in those moments in a way that we can't any longer. And I think you know the other thing that's wrong in our current way of looking at things is forgetting how the good is always intermingled with, with the bad. Increasingly, we seem to talk as if something is either totally good or totally dreadful, you know, whereas anybody knows that you, you, the two things are, are simply mixed up with each other, you know, and um, uh, the, the, my piece talks quite a bit about hunting and, and talks about how I think that part of that sort of English return to the basic, which I see is a bit like the Roman return to the basic. And I think it's not a, an accident we're talking about empires in either case. The, 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 the love for the return to the hunt is, is if you like, a return to the basic, almost to the, the pre-agricultural. And one can be shot by the cruelty of the hunt or, or its elitism and so on. But it, it, then the other aspect of that is the way 
so many people joined in uh, and the way in which you know somehow you know most animals you know that that partly their whole life is is a search for food and a war, warding off of prey and and and, and um in a way that that hunt joins us with that you know and um it it, it gives one the sense that you know what is the whole of the life that the whole of life is 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 not just the purpose but also a kind of a kind of play and the, and the piece is often about how um the utilitarian is 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 linked to the more than utilitarian to the to the decorative and again i'm suggesting that that may be a peculiarity of the english that they they tend to be sort of less interested in art as such but in a way they're very interested in in landscape as art in in gardening as art uh, and in a way in the whole of life as, as art and perhaps the reason why the english landscape has a peculiar kind of prettiness about it is the way in which somehow ordinary processes um become aesthetic i mean all that today, of course, is very, very threatened, but I, but I think it's still visible. That makes sense of like at least my sense of Ruskin and Morris as kind of more quintessentially English than Gainsborough in a way, although that might be an overstatement. G Gainsborough very much stands at the origins of sort of English landscape painting, along with the actually the Welshman, and that's another story. Richard Wilson is the real anticipator of, of Ruskin of, of Turner. Um, but I suppose, I mean, well, I suppose Ruskin and Morris are far more rebellious than the vision of mm. Jacob. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and, and that's because, you know, by that time, um, you know, the, the, there's a sense of the, the total ruination of, of the country, or the threatened ruination of the countryside by industrialization and commercial processes, whereas somebody like Gainsborough is, is more is more complacent. Um, Everything um, seems to be going fairly well. Um, I I sort of have a question. Like I would like your professional opinion yeah. as a theologian. Um, have so I've you know one of the many strange things about reading the Old Testament, one runs into the idea of there being. Um, distinct nations. I can remember the, the extreme weirdness of realizing that God actually, according to the way that the Bible describes it, sees nations. He notices nations as opposed to just individuals or even as opposed to just families. And there's this sense of, you know, obviously in the book of Daniel is the most um, striking example of this. There's a sense of, or at least an implication that each nation has an angel um, in a very kind of fairly literal way assigned to it. And that yeah. a lot of political history has to do with these angels um, duking it out. Like, how? I'm I'm wondering what the is there an angel of England? Is there an angel of the UK? Which 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 How do you t how do you tell which body has the angel? A really great question. I mean, in the piece, there's a, there's a sort of is is it is it a is it a monstrous giant or an angel that that's the yeah. spirit um, guarding England? And I think that's uh, that's quite biblical. It's quite Pauline, if you like, because the New Testament 
um, especially with Paul is starting to worry about who it might be that's governing angel that nations you know are they are they good angels or are they fallen angels or, or semi-fallen angels or, you know are they principalities and, and, and powers um, uh, and yet um, in the New Testament and even and even with Paul there's there's a sense that um, that, that, that Rome is a semi-god and he's not he's not simply rejecting um, Israel so I mean it's very very mysterious isn't it how people's um, do come together how they how they foregather and distinguish themselves and the sense that they are um, led by or expressing in invisible spiritual powers um, make, make, makes quite a lot of sense to me. Uh, and the idea that these, uh, these powers, as, as Paul sees it, uh, uh, are very ambivalent. That, that makes sense as, as, as well, that they're not absolute goods. You know, um, you know, maybe we can't totally avoid polytheism, but we have to remember that monotheism trans transcends that um uh, and uh, so i suppose then we get the idea that gods um transmute into saints who are guardians of of these countries or or indeed that every country has a really good guardian angel um uh, who are who, who's really serving a god who is um the ruler the ruler of everything and 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 wishes for peace <laughs> that all the nations should collaborate uh, and and so forth uh, but i don't i i think that i think we're we're doing a sort of violation to our our, our nature if we just say that all kind of regional and national identities are bad you know uh, I mean, I'm very critical of the idea that a nation necessarily needs to be aligned with a political unit, never mind an absolutely sovereign political unit. Mm -hmm. And this is an incredibly live debate today in Britain where, you know, we've broken with Europe. And on the other hand, we're not a single nation. We're less a single mm -hmm. nation than the USA is. We're four nations you know uh, and I think there's a lot of good in the idea that we're a multinational unit that that more allows us to be an imperium in the good sense or a, or a commonwealth um, it, you, you know in which we're we're synthesizing different cultures and my piece was often about how the English sensibility is connected with the awareness of a sort of a more mysterious Celtic margin and, and with a sometimes rather kind of dark Germanic Scandinavian margin, this kind of east-west tension that's forming our, our sensibility and a, a strong sense of the preternatural that can be attractive or can be sinister. I mean, what country in the world has so many hauntings and such an obsession with murder? <laughs> you know, um, uh, and, and uh, the, 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 that, that's, that's, you know, the dark side. And I think related partly to a memory of, of the pagan, but then we're only ever sort of half, 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 half redeemed. Um, 
but I wanted, I, I, I think um, the piece wants positively to, to celebrate this idea of uh, inherit of that you live in the moment because happiness is always of the, of the moment. Uh, and that this apparently saying, you know, well, seize the seize the moment sounds non-eschatological, but it's high, highly eschatological because happiness doesn't sort of increase or decrease. It's there or not, and so it's that that anticipates heaven. So there's a, there's a sort of advocacy of a sort of a good synthesis of the Christian and the pagan. In in <laughs> it's sometimes in in Anglican sensibility. Um, at, at its best, that, that is assuming in, in a good way this this hint of a Celtic enchantment and uh, and, and is a kind of salve against um, the, the the threat of a dark that requires some kind of sacri sacrificial um, to, to 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 assuage it. But I, I and and the poem, if you follow up my links, I deliberately. Um, quote the Saxon dialogue of um, Solomon with Saturn, because this is known to have very powerful Irish influences. And, you know, I'm very resistant to the idea that Ireland and Britain are completely different cultures. You know, if you look, you know, there were Irish and British scholars educating the, con the continent side by side at, at Arca, you know, and, uh, or if you look at the built book of Kells, there are both Celtic and Saxon influences going on, all, all kind of um, in, interwoven. And, and I think I find, in the case of my own country, I find, I find Irish nationalism ugly, I find Scottish nationalism ugly, and I find English nationalism even uglier, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's probably controversial to say all those things, but I, I do think that kind of British-Irish literary, political, artistic culture at its best represents something kind of more noble than that. And, and there are differences, but there are also certain convergences and, 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 and unities. And, you know, just for the same reason, I don't think it's a good idea that we've cut ourselves up from the EU. However, however disastrously neoliberal it may be, you can't really separate the political from the cultural, you know, and already it's having an insularizing effect on us. You know, so I, I suppose I'm celebrating particularity and, and passionate local identities, but I'm insisting that they're complex and overlapping. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of resisting either a purely abstract idea of the international, if you like, or a kind of fetishistic, atavistic, concrete you know, where your culture is over-politicized um, uh, and, uh, you know, yeah, that, that attachment overrides everything else. Yeah, I think we, need, where the boundaries we, need, are we need neither of those things. And uh, yeah. I, I think Christianity, especially Catholic Christianity, is linked to this idea that we've got, uh, that, it, that it, it can be incarnated in very different ways in different places, you know? Polish Christianity looks very different to Mexican Christianity, but they're, they're, they're recognizably Catholic in either case. 
there's a kind of, we were talking um, with Taryn Don and Jay earlier about the sort of, the kind of violence of simplification that happens when you try to make the political boundaries and the national boundaries, cultural boundaries, identical. And when you try to harden that up too much. And, you know, I think that um, if you look at the case of Wales, it's very interesting because it's arguable that I was on holiday in Kerrydigion recently and was about 60% Welsh speaking. You can argue that Wales really has the most distinctively different culture in the Welsh speaking parts of anywhere in, in, in either Britain or Ireland. And yet it at least until recently, that hasn't taken a directly political form, you know, perhaps because the identity is so fully expressed in, in the cultural. And um, although I do sympathise with Welsh people now are absolutely fed up, fed up with London, I think the risk is that, you know, that you, and you can see this has happened with Ireland, that it's run its independence and in the end kind of lost its soul. It's kind of rejected its own Catholic identity as if this was also something alien. But the result is, it, it, you know, you land up having the same values as everywhere else. You can see the Scottish nationalists as well. You know, that you have the blandest kind of international standard liberal values. Uh, and, and, and you just put a tartan stamp on this or something like that. So the irony is that political uh, sovereignty and independence could actually undermine real nationhood. Completely, completely. And uh, I'm, I'm half Scottish. In fact, I did a recent DNA test and I'm about 60% Celtic and 40% English. So there you go. Um, but, but according to my DNA, but um, I, I think that's that that's 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 completely right. Yeah, um, because you know, uh, absolute modern sovereign nation state is a very very modern idea, and it can be very antithetical to the preservation of your real traditions. I I would just sort of like urge our listeners to once again read the piece um, and then let the piece push you back towards all of the references that you're, you know, <laughs> that you're going to hear in it. Um, and then I don't know, also read Susanna Clark because um, every time you were sort of like downplaying northernness, I kept thinking about sort of like the Raven King and the claims of the Raven King on us. Well, um, I, I, I wasn't meaning to downplay it at all, <laughs> but uh, um, um, that, that's part of what's going on. And there are lots of unresolved tensions in the piece, but I, I'm a huge Susanna Clark fan. And it, it's, <laughs> it's nothing short of astonishing that her second novel, Piranesi, which is absolute genius, is so different from the first one. Yeah, it was at your um, it was at dinner at your place that Allison mentioned that Piranesi existed because I loved um, the first of the novels, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, and I hadn't known about Piranesi and she mentioned it and I think I bought it like the next day. And then this has led to this massive obsession with Piranesi among the kind of like broader plow community. Well, I think that kind of would wrap us up. Uh, John, thank you so much for coming on. This has been completely delightful. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your app of choice and rate us as well. We'll be back next week to talk with Ashley Lucas about her in-depth reported piece on Russell Maroon Schultz, who's been in prison since 1972 for the politically motivated murder of a policeman. And 
29 of those years he spent in solitary confinement in the state of Pennsylvania. So whatever your preconceptions are about what such a piece will be, uh, you'll be surprised. See you next week.